0: Hello and welcome once again to your favorite storytelling podcast, Tales from a Cult Insider. I am that cult insider, your host and chief storyteller, Jared Garrett. I am also a happy ice cream eater and cake eater, never want to leave that out. Just as a quick uh, catch up, I was born and raised in a cult that was called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which later morphed into something called the Foundation Faith of God which later morphed into something called Best Friends Animal Society. This is not an expose of Best Friends Animal Society and its shady past. I have nothing shady to say about its past. This is the opportunity for me, Jared, to share the story of me growing up in this cult. And really, my story is very similar to many of the other kids that I grew up with. I grew up with about 30 other kids of varying ages, and in a recent panel that I was on, was asked why I tell these stories. Why I write, also, novels but that that tend to draw from my life, but also why I tell these stories. And it's, it's hard to come up with a reason. Like a single unifying reason, or at least it was for a bit there as I thought about that. I'd never been asked that before. I mean, I have reasons like, well, I wouldn't mind parlaying the crappy um, childhood that I had into fame and fortune. Uh, and if not fame, some fortune. But sometimes fame leads to fortune, as long as it's not terrible infamy. Um, get that right, three amigos. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, so, I mean, grant, der, granted, I ha, I'd like to make a living off of my stories, my novels, uh, my memoir, this podcast, all the other creative things that I do. I do voiceovers for novels. I do public speaking. It's a lot of fun. I'd love to be able to have that be the living that I make, Um, but it's not. Uh, But that's just not the actual fundamental reason why I tell these stories. And I realized as I was listening to the other other panelists why I'm telling these stories, why it's such an important part of my life to really tell these stories as as many times as I can, as often as I can, and in as clear a way and honest a way as possible. And that's because I feel... I feel like we were overlooked, and it's not even just a feeling. We were overlooked. We were neglected. We were not, there wasn't a plan for us. There wasn't a plan for our nurture as kids. There wasn't a plan for my nurture as a kid. There was simply, from the perception that I had growing up and that I still have, there was simply a a need to feed us because we were biological organisms that needed to be fed so that they wouldn't have a bunch of dead kids on their hands and then go to jail. Um, there was a need for us to be fed and uh, kept off the streets as much as possible. It didn't always work. Um, and more. And so spending your whole life feeling overlooked and being overlooked, being factually overlooked, neglected, not thought about, not cared about, that's painful and hard. Um, and I, I shared last time about... How when there was a moment or two here and there of not being overlooked, why it meant so much. It was like earth-shaking for me. The truth is, I'm telling these stories because I will not be erased. I will not be deleted. I will not, I will not, you know, not be here. I am here, by golly. My voice will be heard, and I'm telling the story, whether they like it or not. Um, I have no animosity, no malintent whatsoever for those folks, but I will be heard. And as they whitewashed their story so that they could see it a little bit more palatable from their past, the kids weren't even mentioned, and that is just not okay. So not as a, as a way to get back, but as a way to say, no, I'm here. And in the words of Horton here's a Who, we are here, we are here, we are here. I don't pretend to speak for all the kids I grew up with but I speak for myself and I'm going to tell the stories in the way that I always wanted to tell the stories with the feeling that I always wanted to feel to to put into them because I feel this and I've always had to bite back. I was rereading through parts of my memoir recently as I started to get prepared for, for, for querying and submission to to agents and, and publishers and the, um, just, just reading about how, there were there were parts of my times in my life when i just felt like i was always pretending and I, at times i still feel that way and that's because i'm always feeling so much and i think we many so many of us feel that and i believe i might have mentioned that before but we feel we feel and it is appropriate to to rein it in so that we're not you know, weirding things out too much but we do need to be true and we need to find to ourselves and we need to find opportunities To express ourselves fully and honestly. And so here's me telling the stories of growing up in this cult. Uh, As always, your questions will be answered. You're welcome to ask. No questions today, which is kind of fun. Um, Kind of a surprisingly large number of listens in the last week. Uh, Thank you all for all, all you new listeners. Thanks for joining in. At my, uh, my unique opportunity at the ground floor, you know, go get some downline and maybe we can make some money. I'm kidding, of course. This isn't an MLM, even though I do live in Utah. Contact me at jared at jaredgarrett.com or find me on Twitter. I'm just Jared Garrett on Twitter. Uh, I tweet a lot, uh, rarely politics, almost, almost never now. A lot more about stories and fun things that I find interesting and um, on topics that I find interesting, especially technology and the future and stuff like that. I do speaking engagements. Uh, I'm happy to visit your school, your rotary, your Kiwanis, your book club, your garden club, um, your graduation, your whatever. Happy to chat. I can I can do keynotes of 15 to 30 minutes. Uh, find me, and um, let's move on. Let's get to it. The um, I feel like I'm quoting the guy from HQ, that fun trivia uh, game on the phones. This is episode nine. It's called Why I Hate Hatchbacks. That's right, hatchback cars. They are the bane of my existence. They're not, they're not. This is, this is uh, me trying to be really, you know, I guess clickbaity. I'm not really trying to be clickbaity. I just, I feel like that title sums up uh, my feelings on, on an issue. I don't particularly hate hatchbacks, although I don't, I'm not fond of them as they feel too small. <clears throat> so I wanted to tell you the story of my oldest brother leaving, um, and uh, and really make sure that I, I tell that whole story and give it. It's due. I've relived the story. I've relived the events my whole life. Um, and uh, they're st- they still strike me as strange, um, unexpected. So, we were living in Quakertown. I've mentioned Quakertown once or twice before in previous episodes. Quakertown is a town in Pennsylvania. Uh, we lived at, in a large house, a really large, quite old house. Uh, at the top of a long sloping hill that went down to a pond, circled around most on most sides by beautiful green forest, thick, thick forest. Um, Daniel was my brother. He had been my brother my whole life. Uh, he had been brought into the, the, the foundation, uh, as far as I know it was called the foundation by that time. Um, when he was a few years old, old enough to be aware of his surroundings and old enough to remember his life before being brought into this cult unwillingly. Um, his dad had been somehow gotten out, manipulated out of the cult by Marianne, the woman who ran the cult. Um, apparently they didn't hit it off well or something and she didn't like him. And so she got rid of him. She got him to go and leave his wife and his child behind. So he, Daniel, you know, he understood that he was in a different and unpleasant situation without his father Uh, His mom, our mom, married a a British man named John who talked like this, you know, quite British, you know, into his nose a little bit and uh, often quite friendly and very, very capable of all kinds of things, you know, and a very, very pleasant man in general. You know, very good. He taught me how to make um, dog houses. And anyway, um, I worked side by side with John a little bit uh, over the years. And um, John was a nice guy. He wasn't Daniel's father, although he adopted Daniel uh, as his son. And then my mother, Magdalene, and John had another son, who's our my older brother, our, um, the middle brother. And then I was born some years later, although John wasn't my father. Um, Daniel spent time with me. He, he, he seemed to have made a priority of being a brother to me. And I, I would assume he did the same for Matthias, but I don't know. We haven't talked enough about that. Um, honestly, we don't we don't we don't talk as much as we should, but um, yeah. So he was a brother to me. He, he he really did seem to dote on me, from what I remember. Uh, maybe I'm remembering wrong. Maybe I'm rose coloring it all. But I felt like he gave me attention. Uh, he cared about me, and he called me his brother a lot. Um, he swore up and down that John was the father of all of us, even though he was the father of only one of us boys. Um, we. I didn't grow up with a family, we weren't growing up in a family unit, and so it's not like we were just I mean, the typical brothers, but we were brothers, and th- and Daniel really wanted to make sure that I could, as far as I could tell, that, that, that I felt like I was uh, wanted by him and loved by him. Uh, we were in Manhattan uh, at the same time, where he taught us to box a little bit, and I laid out my opponent pretty well. Uh, he... Um, he was in Angel Mountain, he was in Narrowsburg, which is in New York, and then we were in Quickertown together. I spent a lot of my early years with him, and you know, it's possible that I'm, I, I'd am i be a lot worse off if I didn't have him there as a brother, as a stability, um, as a kind of a foundation, um, and that support and that, that, what nurture there was from him. Um, boy, howdy, he was fast with his hands. He could catch flies out of the air, and then he when he did... He would shake him up so they were dizzy and feed him to his dog Amy which is a little weird and messed up he was pretty strong he uh, got me by the, by the time I was six I was doing push-ups side by side with him in the mornings most mornings uh, he could boy he could crank out push-ups like crazy he was lean he was blonde uh, light light colored and lightweight hair when he jumped he would it would his hair would go up and down flap and down I remember that um, he liked shorts and t-shirts tank tops stuff like that um, in general uh, a happy dude he looked a lot like a i mean he looked like a california surfer um all things considered and um you know i felt like uh, he was my best friend growing up you know until i was about six or seven he was he was there for me he he led us in shenanigans he led uh, all the kids in cutting down trees and building a log cabin with a chainsaw he stole he um he was kind of the ringleader for a while, and I looked up to him, and I felt like it probably a little special, I think, because he was the ringleader of the kids for a while, and he was my brother, you know, I mean, I'm I'm the kid brother of the ringleader, so I'm, you know, kind of like the mob, I felt like a a special person because of him, but uh, when we were in Quakertown, he was 16, you know, turning 17, maybe, and I I don't know what the laws were then. I think that the laws now are that you can't take off from your home by the before you're eighteen. But as far as my memory serves, he was not quite eighteen when he left. Because I wasn't eight. I was about six and a half, seven years old. So here are the circumstances. We're in Quakertown. Um, there's a Dunkin' Donuts downtown. We're not we're not actually downtown. He has to get out there on his own. And he intends to have a friend of his uh, pick him up. Um, and uh his friend drives a hatchback and would come buzzing up the road up the longest driveway coming out of the out of the trees pick up daniel and they'd go to work and then daniel would come home and he'd often bring home a pretty big black trash bag full of donuts because they they just got rid of their donuts every day which is what could be cooler right so, I mean, hey, Jared, I thought you said your cult life was crummy. It was, but it was also pretty great sometimes. Um, I had donuts a fair amount growing up in that, point, at la- that part of my life, at least. Uh, probably began my lifelong love affair with the, with the de- lovely, delectable, deep-fried pastry. Uh, he, um, he, worked at, he got a job, you know, at that age, outside of the cult. You know, he was living a life that was separate from the cult, and he was determined to get out as soon as he could. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, he did. One day, it just we had talked plenty about one day getting out, and um, and it was all in hazy things. There was nothing particularly specific, um, but one day that that was it. Apparently, he had planned it, and he was leaving. I didn't know who he talked to. I don't know if he talked to Magdalene, who was in Quakertown Town at the time, our mom. I don't know if he talked to anybody. He maybe he did. I assume he must have, uh, but. He suddenly had a bag packed, a couple bags, I think a duffel and a backpack, and he was on his way out, and I was wondering, I wondered what was going on, and it turned out he was leaving, and I was heartbroken. I was like, Daniel, Daniel's leaving? No, that can't be right. He's, he's always here. He's been here. He's my guy. He's my brother, but he was leaving. His, his friend, don't remember his friend's name. I named him Hank in the novel. Um, his friend was coming to get him. And they were going to move in together or something. And that was that. And so I found myself waiting with Daniel, near Daniel, trying to not, uh, kind of basically not have him be gone, um, but at least if nothing else, to, to be in his presence until he was gone. And up buzzed the hatchback. This terrible little, it's probably like a Pinto or a Datsun of some kind, Um It's a light color, maybe a pink or a red. Buzzed up the driveway, dirt uh, kind of coming up from the up the wheels. It was it was a a dry day. It had been a dry week, I guess. And he pulled around, and there, and there he was, Daniel. He jumped jumped out of the car, greeted Daniel. Daniel greeted him, and Daniel put his stuff in the back and uh, came over and said goodbye to me, gave me a hug, got in the car and left, and he was gone. Just like that. I mean, no ceremony. No. I kind of wanted to be Hamlet. You know, what ceremony? Not Hamlet. Laertes from Hamlet, with when he's watching his sister Ophelia, who's died uh, tragically, be buried. Um, she possibly committed suicide, and of course, um, Laertes is disappointed and sad and broken up, and it, it, he's being buried without no any ritual. And he says, "What ceremony else?" Well, in that moment. If I could reach back, I would have said, "What ceremony else? Is that it? You're just, you're just gone." And if Daniel had known what was in store for him and me, in the coming years, he may have done more. He may have taken more time. I'm sure he would have, but we just didn't know. He didn't come back. That was that. He left. He was gone for good from the cult. Um, I don't believe I ever saw him again, um, except for right after he left. So he left, and I just watched. As, the ca- as this car faded out of sight down the driveway and drove into the trees and then was gone. Just gone. And I was just speechless and also empty inside. And I felt like my whole body was flat against the ground. Not squashed, but as if I wasn't there. As if uh, I was just some object. I don't know, being or not even a thing. And, um, so I left and I was, as I walked away from the driveway, I, I got more, I got emotional. I started to cry and felt just lost again, all of a sudden. And, um, again, because I had felt lost before I'd felt alone before, but this was a new one because he wasn't there. Um, and I was for sure on my own. Um, and, uh, as I rounded the house, um, up, up to the one side where, there was a, a large tree with a large area of grass around it and beyond it quite a ways, about, I'm going to say, 10, 20 yards of grass. And then there was another kind of brushy area. Um, I saw Daniel leap out of the trees, duffel in hand, backpack swinging, uh, hands wide. Mouth wide, eyes wide, a huge laugh cracking his face open. And he was just yelling, ah, just kidding. I'm not leaving. I blinked and he was gone. I had imagined it. I had completely hallucinated My brother coming right back all of a sudden as if it were a joke. Um, But yeah, that was was the last time I saw my oldest brother, Daniel. Um, Not the last time I spoke with him, but the last time I saw him. And um, uh, there's more to say uh in an an episode a little while from now not today not today no but um it's a it's a big moment in my life um having you know up till then having my parents not seem to be very concerned with me although it turns out my dad had and my mom maybe a little but not much uh being in what i knew was a cult um sure i'm seven or so and i don't really understand what a cult is but i know i'm in a very different situation from the from the typical majority of the world where kids are at least with with a parent being treated like a kid, being told they're loved, be giving, being able to give hugs and get hugs, being able to c- cry on shoulders and or in laps and uh, have actual parent things happen. Uh, I wasn't in that situation and I knew it was weird. Even though it was my only, the only thing I knew and it was my life and so I just coped with it and dealt with it the day to day each day, you know, doing what I needed to do to get through. Um, and usually finding fun and happiness, and or at least enjoyment in, in, in different aspects of life, I knew it was weird. Of course I knew it was weird, but that was on a philosophical ac- academic level, not on a bones like this is my life and it's screwing me up level. I didn't know that. Um, and luckily, I'm not all that screwed up, guys. I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, I can see that I am not perfect by any means. Who is? I can see there are parts of me that, while... I believe are not as broken as they once were um, due to grace uh, and due to extraordinary miracles I can see there are parts of me that'll never be shaped the way they might have been shaped um, if I had grown up in a different way and that's the same that's the case for everybody Uh, things about noise and things about um, a bit of PTSD here and there with people being behind me and the way people talk and the way people treat me and stuff, you know, I, I can get a little anxious, anxious and upset and cranky and shaky sometimes even. but um having him leave, the guy who did regularly pay me attention, having him leave was um, that was not a good thing for me. That was that was a turning point for me. It's uh, it's a big part of... Um, I think where I started to re- really isolate myself, really just to start to drown in my books, uh, to, in my stories with The Black Stallion and um, everything like The Black Stallion, every horse novel I could find, uh, and lots and lots more stuff. Uh, and I don't know why The Black Stallion sticks the most out, but it really does. Black Stallion was huge for me, Bridget Terabithia, of course, um, a lot of the Newberry books I read back then as well because they were kind of the younger kid books and the librarians would point me that way Um, but yeah that's definitely where I started to isolate myself and really feel like I was a loner Um, on my own nobody really could ever understand me um, and closing myself off and that was a mistake I know it was a mistake there were plenty of good people around me that I could have opened up to uh, had them be part of my life I could have been part of their life I could have seen what they were going through and not felt so exceptional in that I felt I was exceptionally alone, exceptionally crapped on, exceptionally overlooked and neglected, uh, exceptionally beaten sometimes. Uh, Yeah, if I'd let people into my life and kind of been able to be a part of their life, I would have been able to connect. We all know what connection does. You know, it gives us uh, something to hold on to and it helps us see other people's lives and it helps us to see that the the experiences we're having are the human experience and not just the our experience although they are are our own unique experience there's so many commonalities that we're just not alone we're not alone friends we're not alone you're not alone i don't no matter how you feel right now or might be feeling or might have felt before or or now i don't know if you're feeling if any of you are feeling like like the world's got it in for you. It doesn't. It doesn't. The sad thing is that too often, much of the world doesn't even notice you. But guess who's noticing you, my guy, my guys? Um, your family and your dear friends. My mistake was that I wouldn't let anybody become my family or my dear friends. I just wouldn't. I, that was a mistake I made. So that that is, uh, that is the story of why I hate hatchbacks. I don't particularly hate hatchbacks. But I certainly have a very strong image, a very vivid image of a hatchback that carried away my oldest brother. Um, And uh, this may be why many other stories I write include a brother, uh, either long lost or um, not long lost, but a brotherly relationship. And I try to get it, capture it the way I think that it should be captured. Often the brotherly relationships in the stories that I write are fairly idyllic uh, in how I think brother relationships should be. Maybe it's a bit of a, a yearning that I'm trying to to fulfill by writing those brother relationships. So that's the story, uh, for today. Um, We're at about twenty four minutes, so I'm going to take just another minute and tell you a little bit, uh, another little vignette, um, about uh, a little prank that we played just for kicks and giggles here. This was in, I believe, still Quakertown, but it might have been Narrowsburg. I'm pretty sure Quakertown. Uh, the, the majority of the kids there had kind of transitioned on to somewhere else, but I was still there. There was a young man named Julius there, uh, and I believe uh, Mariah was still there. And we uh, just kind of did our own thing. And we found out that another uh, kid was coming. We didn't know when, but we were pretty sure it was ha- happening in the next couple of next couple of days. We're surrounded by forest, remember? Huge, deep. Thick forests, and um, Julius and I—we, I don't know what it was, but we connected pretty well sometimes. And I, maybe, maybe it was because he felt pretty connected to Daniel that uh, that he maybe felt a little bit of a brotherly connection with me for a while. But we heard Leonora was coming, and we thought, well, let's let's get her. This will be fun. So we decided and planned on a prank in which we would prank her into thinking that the house was being stalked by bigfoot that bigfoot was in the area and um and she would need to be careful and so we planned it all we figured out where we'd go in the forest and some things that we would do so what we did was she showed up and we took her on a hike or, or a walk through the forest i think same day even like same day we didn't even let her settle in took her on the walk through the forest went to what we knew was a giant pile of trees and brush i don't know if you ever have walked through a deep forest but the uh you often find uh, the, these interesting gatherings of piles of trees. It's like a tree fell and then branches fall over it and then wind blows and, wa- and storms blow, branches and leaves through it, and it all kind of piles in this giant, big, complicated pile that you can never disentangle. But it looks like it's, it could be a home, especially with some of the opening-type uh, shadows that, that appear on these, these piles of, uh, of brush and detritus. And so we pointed at, at this giant pile said, that is where Bigfoot lives. And if you're not careful, uh, if you come out here by yourself, he might get you. So you better be careful. And she was just totally skeptical. She was a little kid, a couple years younger than me, but she was totally skeptical. She was like, no, but you could tell. You could tell. On one level, she's like, are they for real? Could this be true? And I'm like, you know, you know, we're totally telling you the truth. And she kind of trusted me because I think we had a bit of a history, but not that much since we were still kids. And I was totally swearing up and down, oh, yeah, it's Bigfoot's for real. So um, stage two, and the, this was the final stage because that's all we had because we were kids, uh, was to have Leonora be uh, convinced that Bigfoot was coming. And um, that the way we did this was I was in the house, Leonora was too. Before she showed up, we had made a giant Bigfoot face, colored it, uh, and given it glowing eyes glowing type of eyes on a big foot face and covered it and it was cardboard and colored it and then pasted that to to a very long stick like a 12 or 15 foot long pole and so it stuck to the top of this pole and so oh, at the at the ordained time I took Leonora outside to, walked her towards the edge of the forest and said okay if you're quiet we might hear him walking and we stood there quiet and there must have either been a signal or Julius could see us or something because he started to growl and thump a stick against trees as if he was Bigfoot walking and she got kind of nervous and then he pushed a couple trees so they would sway a little bit. She got a little more nervous. I'm like, you see, he's here, he's here. And then he uh, thumped a few more times and lifted this Bigfoot face that didn't glow like we wanted it to, uh, but it was visible um, between some trees. He lifted it. They made it look like Bigfoot had just showed up, and she freaked out. She's like, no, oh, my gosh, and uh, (laughs) ran off, and it was prank managed, guys, prank managed. Uh, And uh, there you go. Julius was also the best hide-and-seek player I'd ever seen. He wouldn't hide behind things. We would play in the evenings when there were lots of cool shadows from the moon and stuff, and he would hide in shadows on the ground, like a big, thick tree, cast a giant shadow. You could almost be sure that Julius would be hiding in that shadow somewhere. You just couldn't see him anywhere. He'd go towards the base or towards the the, the far end of the shadow. He was a great hider, very creative, smart guy. And that's all I have to tell you for night. Next week we've got uh stories of how I learned to use a shovel really well, like really well, and how to how uh, best friends owes its water and some of its plumbing. And a lot of its runs, like dog and cat runs, to a large number of kids. And um, how I know to, how I know how to deal with scorpions in your tent. Uh, uh, spoiler alert: You flick them, friends. You flick them good. That's all I got for you today. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time for episode ten.